Christ's name. Amen. We're going to have an interesting change in our series in Acts. We've been looking at the book of Acts, and we have noticed that the book started with Peter. Peter is the first one mentioned there who says we've got to do something about this disciple, Judas, who's no longer among us. And so he comes up with a plan. It's Peter who starts preaching on the day of Pentecost, the first sermon. It's Peter who says in chapter 3, begins to understand the implications of the gospel. And Peter says, listen, the promise that's given to Abraham is a promise that's for your seed. All the families of the earth are going to be blessed. And so he knows certain things in his head, but it's going to take a while for those things to work themselves out in his heart and life. And then we get sort of switch over and gears, move to Paul. And Saul is brought in here, and, and Saul and his salvation is a, is, takes place in chapter 9. But Saul now is being removed for safekeeping, and he goes back to his original hometown. And so now the spotlight comes right back onto Peter, and we're in chapter 9, verse 32 in which we're going to notice that Peter is in the process of being taught some important lessons. Peter is not arrived yet. He is still being used by God to uh, learn some important aspects of thinking through the gospel and the implications of the gospel in his own life and in the life of the church. And one area of Peter's life that needed to undergo change was his attitude toward people who were non-Jews. Peter had a difficult time welcoming outsiders, welcoming people that we call Gentiles. What they used the term in, in, uh, in the Hebrew was goyim. It was the people who were out there, but we are the people of God. They are not the people of God. And so he had difficulty doing that. Why? Because he prided himself in his cultural and religious distinctives, including such things as his circumcision, including his his faithful attendance at various religious festivals that he would attend on a regular basis. He also was one who prided himself on uh, his kosher diet and the food that he ate, which he believed he followed, was a kosher diet, among other things. But when the gospel came, it brought about this radical vision in which the commonly held viewpoint of Jewish exclusiveness has now been completely obliterated. The gospel liberates the people of God to be light to all the people of the world. Why? Because the gospel has a global scope. And so every believer like Peter, when they become a Christian, they go through a process of change. And all of us as believers face this kind of being under construction. We're not finished yet. And one of the ways that God helps believers learn, one of the ways God helps to develop us into greater patterns of godliness and holiness, I'm convinced, comes through the example of people around us who are understanding the gospel, live out the gospel, and who are serving as those who understand grace. And so Peter needed to have the gospel change his heart so that he would have a change in what he thought and believed, and that would affect how he lived and how he would actually interact with these outsiders, these outcasts. Now here's where we're going. We're going to move from chapter 9 today to next week is chapter 10 in Acts. And chapter 10, some of you may have in your Bibles, oh, that's all about Cornelius and his conversion. And that's probably a good summary of what the chapter is about. But John Stott has a very helpful insight. 
He said, actually, a lot of what chapter 10 is about is not just the conversion of Cornelius. It is about the conversion of Peter. Because Peter needs to have the gospel applied to his heart so that he can now move in faith and obedience in what God wants him to be doing and therefore be the channel of the gospel to Cornelius. And so God's objective here is that the gospel transform his heart, Peter's heart, so that he would witness to and welcome and warmly embrace people like Cornelius who are outsiders and Gentiles and that kind of thing. Let's take our Bibles here now. We'll read this text of Scripture beginning in verse 32. We're in Acts 9, verse 32. Now it came about that as Peter was traveling through all those parts, he came down also to the saints, that is the believers, the true believers, who lived at Lydda. And there he found a certain man named Aeneas, who had been who had been bedridden eight years, for he was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Arise and make your bed. And immediately he arose. And all who lived in Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. Now in Joppa there was a certain disciple named Tabitha, which translated in Greek is called Dorcas. And by the way, both of those names mean gazelle. Interestingly enough, that's what those those names actually mean. This woman, Tabitha, was abounding with deeds of kindness and charity, which she continually did. And it came about at that time that she fell sick and died. And when they had washed her body, they laid it in an upper room. And since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, having heard that Peter was there, sent two men to him, entreating him, Do not delay to come to us. And Peter arose and went with them, and when they had come, they brought him into the upper room, and all the widows stood beside him weeping and showing all the tunics and garments that Dorcas used to make while she was with them. But Peter sent them all out and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand and raised her up and called the saints and widows. He presented her alive. And it became known all over Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. And it came about that he stayed many days in Joppa with a certain tanner, Simon. I'd like to consider four ways in this text that God used different demonstrations of the gospel Gospel love, gospel power to help overcome the church's tendency to remain in a holy huddle. Because that's what I'm sort of understanding this text to be conveying to us here in the progression from where we started the book to where we're going next week in chapter 10. First of all, let me just start with a very obvious point. The gospel example of Jesus Christ. The gospel example of Jesus Christ. Who would debate this statement, that Peter was dramatically and wonderfully changed over time by closely watching the godly, wonderfully gracious example of his Savior, Jesus Christ, for three years? It is Peter who heard Jesus say and who saw Jesus do a number of radically gracious 
loving things during his three years of public ministry. See, Jesus didn't just talk about the importance of ministering to people who were considered to be outsiders, people who were the non-Jews, the unclean people, quote-unquote, but he actually went into Gentile cities as part of his three years of ministry there, and he entered the homes of non-Jews. For example, we read in Mark chapter 7 that Jesus not only declared all food clean, that's an interesting change for those who are so caught up in following all the rules and regulations, but he says, listen, all that stuff has now been fulfilled. Food is clean. You can eat anything you want. And soon thereafter, he says, in Mark 7, 19, he goes to the region called Tyre, which is on the coast of the Mediterranean, and he enters a house. You say, well, that's no big deal. It is a big deal because this particular home, Mark tells us, belonged to a Syrophoenician woman, that's basically a Greek woman, a non-Jew, who was coming and asking that he would help, this, help her with this terrible problem. She has a daughter who is demon-possessed. So Jesus crossed over many social, religious, cultural boundaries in his ministry of grace and bringing the gospel. It was common in those days to avoid people who were unclean, people who were diseased, people who were deformed, people who were demon-possessed. If you were a good uh, person who was so conscious of trying to keep yourself to be from being defiled, and therefore you would avoid all these people. Well, what, what did Jesus do, though? Jesus ministered to them compassionately and up close. I'm convinced the more you read the Gospels through those lens, you begin to see it's, it's, it's shocking, some of the things that he did. So when Peter then encounters lives that are crushed under the curse of sin, when he encounters people as he spreads out further and further now from Jerusalem, here in this text in Acts 9, he followed in the steps of his Savior. He is crossing over boundaries in order to demonstrate the power of the gospel over the curse of sin. In our text, Peter is called to Joppa. I know I'm skipping this latter part of the text here, but he, he's called to Joppa to help a situation. Um, earlier in his life, he would have, I'm sure, had he been asked to get involved in this, he would have walked away and said, uh-uh. I'm not getting involved in this. Sorry. No way. He's learning about this compassionate woman, generous woman, a, a, a merciful woman who's helped people who are poor. She provides them clothing. And here is this woman named Tabitha has now died. And you can tell there's many people upset about this. She touched many lives. And by the way, I wonder what people would say about you and me if we were no longer around. Would anybody who was considered to be a nobody, some of the people who are not very well off in this world's eyes, not just the famous and the people who are well-connected, would they be affected by the fact that you're no longer around, showing love and grace and mercy to the nobodies of the world? Well, here they are. They were very much impacted by this. They're very much concerned about this woman. And so he hears, as he's been called into this situation, wailing. He's hearing, hearing the professional mourners with loud cries and like a good Jew, earlier in his life, he would have said, I'm not going anywhere close to this dead body because that will clearly defile me, make me so that I cannot even worship. 
But he's compelled by the gospel to minister according to the example of Jesus. And so he enters the home where a dead body is at rest. Now, over time, we know that Peter gradually learned to expand the scope of people that he ministered to. And we're seeing that now in this text right here. Because the gospel is clearly at work in him, helping him realize that this is an opportunity for him to show forth not his own personal preference and the things he's always sort of conceded to, but now he realizes there's an opportunity to show forth Christ in this situation. And clearly, if you look at the statement of Peter's similarities and how he speaks and talks about people to arise up, get up, you know, those kind of things, it's interesting. Um, Again, as I read the text there earlier in Mark's gospel, we heard about uh, there's a news that comes to Jesus. Somebody's sick. He gets interrupted with this woman. He comes back and hears the news that this person has died. And so what does he do? He comes there. He holds the hand of the child. He says to her, Talitha kum, with a T-H in the first word, Talitha, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. Now notice verse 40 of chapter 9 here in this text. He says, Tabitha, kum, arise. It's changed by one letter. In the Greek, the T-H is one letter. And here, it's a B. What is he saying here? There's no question that Luke is trying to emphasize that the words spoken by, G by Peter here are very closely resembling what Jesus uttered that time when he is a Savior ministering to those who were under the curse of sin, those who needed the hope of the transforming power and love of Christ. Here is the example of Jesus' love being lived out now by Peter as he offers to go into situations which he would have avoided in the past. Are you like me? Sometimes you get a little bit cautious when it comes to dealing with quote-unquote scary people, people who are different than you people who look different, people who talk different, people who smell different, people who have different patterns and habits. I really enjoyed reading this story about Max Stiles, who has written several books on evangelism. He is a person who has a real heart for evangelism. He talks about how he had a friend of his who uh, mentioned that um, she's trying to witness to this guy, and he says, well, someday I'd like to I'll, I'll get involved with you and I'll try to help witness to him as well and come to find out he was a biker. Now, no offense to those of you who love to be a biker. That's fine. God loves you. And uh, there'd be many wonderful bikers in heaven, I'm sure. But he describes this guy named Roger. I thought his description of it spoke volumes. He's trying to gain his composure when this guy presents himself one day. And he says he looked the part. A short, oily ponytail hung limp on his neck. His unbuttoned leather vest was functioned as his shirt. His naked belly hung over his wide leather belt. A brass chain fastened his fat leather wallet to a belt loop on his jeans. I can just see this. It jingled whenever his right foot landed on the floor, giving a metallic peg-legged tempo to his walk. His red, purple, and blue dagger tattoo further accented his modern-day pirate outfit. So he talks about the fact that how initially his reaction was, oh my goodness, I'm over my head. Where am I going to go with this guy? 
he proceeded to eventually get back on this guy's motorcycle, went for a ride in the whole neighborhood. He said, I wish I had a camera. People would not have believed that I was actually involved in this guy's life. There are many of us who look at people and we immediately draw conclusions that I don't think I want to get involved in this person's life. I still vividly recall a time in my life when there was a guy who attended our church where I was on staff and a senior pastor really looked after this guy in a very compassionate way. He was a fellow who had some mental illness issues and he was not taking his medicine, which he should have, and so therefore he was said some things at times that were indeed did not make sense. He was rather unkept. His hair was long and bushy and his beard was untrimmed and he would sort of waver back and forth and um, he would get intense at times and talk as if he was just about ready to explode, but that was just the way he, he was. His name was Glenn. And I remember the pastor being out of the country for during the summer and I was asked to make sure if this Glenn needed help, I was to try to make sure I could give him assistance. And so Glenn called me one day, said, I wonder if you could give me a, a ride to the store. I need to get something. I said, sure, I'll be glad to. So I picked him up and what is he wearing? It's a summer afternoon and he's wearing a trench coat. It's a summer day. And he had on dress shoes and socks and you couldn't tell what was on under it. I didn't ask him, I didn't wanna know. And so I took this guy to the mall to go to a store and the whole time I'm going there, I'm thinking, what are people thinking about me being with him? And then I realize, what's wrong with you? Why are you so concerned about what they think of you? You should be glad that you have an opportunity to serve this guy. And I realized I really failed in becoming too absorbed in myself and not willing to say, I should be glad to have him as my friend. There's nothing wrong with this guy. He hadn't done anything wrong. He just looks a little different, that's all. Perhaps you know people like that in your life that you've tried to avoid. <laughs> Don't we all? And what I think is happening here is that the more you realize what Jesus spent his life doing and what Peter was now beginning to do was to move out of the comfort zone of what was considered normal and to move with the gospel into lives of people who were considered to be a little different, a little strange, a little odd. A little bit like, I'm not sure I really want to know you deeply. And clearly, in the example here of Peter is that I believe Jesus' example of love compelled Peter to go into these situations and minister. In the past, he would have avoided them, but now he's moving in the power of the gospel. It is the power of the gospel that works mightily in the hearts of the people of God, as well as in the hearts of people who need to be fully redeemed and changed by the gospel. And so Jesus, by his example, reminds us that his love came into this world, the sin-cursed world, to break the bonds of that sin curse, to bring new life through the Holy Spirit. Secondly, I'd like us to look and consider the example of Philip. The example of Philip. I'm still in Acts chapter 9, believe it or not, and you're probably looking for the name Philip. Where is Philip's name here? I don't see it anywhere. Well, you don't see his name here, but clearly Philip had served as an example of gospel ministry because Philip was the one who took the gospel from Jerusalem and he went into an area where people, as I've said in earlier weeks, 
to people he used to hate, to people that he would despise in his earlier life. Because his heart, which was full of year, for years and years, full of prejudice, full of bigotry, full of, of racial pride toward the people of Samaria, now his heart has been radically changed. He realizes, I am no different and no better than they are, and that God sees us as equally people who need the gospel. And so we read earlier in chapter 8 that Philip moved in the direction of taking the gospel to people that he spent his life avoiding. And it's Philip's groundbreaking gospel ministry took him first to Samaria. And then we read in chapter 8, verse 40, maybe you want to back up to that just to look at this verse. The last verse of chapter 8 says, Philip found his way, found himself at Azotus, and he passed through, he kept preaching the gospel in all the cities until he came to Caesarea. Now, the reason I'm reading that verse is to let you know that the area we're talking about today in Acts 9 is a similar area of where Philip had gone. And that's why many of the scholars say that both in Lydda and Joppa, it's likely that the fact you run into Christians in these cities is because Philip had already been there. He's already brought the message of the gospel. So by the time Peter comes, the cities are mostly, again, populated by Gentiles. But here are small groups of believers already there. And while there, Peter is moved with compassion for a man named Ennius, who was paralyzed and bedridden for eight years. And he announced that Jesus is the one who healed him. He made it a point to emphasize who was the one that was doing the healing. Immediately, Ennius regained his mobility. And once again, if you compared the words of Peter with the words that Jesus used in healing many paralytics during his ministry is, you know, get up, uh, take your bed, and rise and go. You know, and similar kinds of words are repeated here. But Peter realizes, and the way he's worded it here is, not only here, but in the text later on as he dealt with Dorcas, is that Peter prayed before he tried to minister to her. What's he, what's he acknowledging there? He's saying, it's not all up to me to do this ministry. There's no room for Peter to boast here. Jesus healed Ennius. It is Peter that prayed that God would raise Tabitha from the dead. And it is Jesus who continues, I believe what he's saying here is, Jesus is the one who continuously continues to minister through his people, but it's Jesus who builds his church. It's Jesus who is raising the dead. It is Jesus who's uh, helping the handicapped, raising them up. It's Jesus who brings new believers into the church. It's Jesus who causes his servants to be filled with love and move out with compassion to people who are different than them. None of us has the power to save anyone. But... It is Jesus working through his servants who are empowered by the Holy Spirit who are speaking forth his word. It is, that, it is through them that he now builds his church. And so there was, a, there was the example of Philip that helped Peter. There's a third idea I want to share here that's a little bit of a, of a switch, but not too much. I want to talk a little about the gospel exemplified in miracles. Because as you read this text, I'm not going to go into too much detail about it other than to refer you back to what I said when we looked at Acts chapter 3, in which Peter healed 
uh, the gentleman there in the temple complex. But at that time, we noticed that the first century apostles were given special, unique abilities to perform various works of power, including healings. And these miracles served to authenticate, to give veracity to, to, to say this is the true, genuine apostle who is preaching to you the true, genuine gospel, that they were sent by Jesus to act on his behalf. And the reason I know that is because 2 Corinthians 12, 12 teaches exactly that. It says, 2 Corinthians 12, 12, the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with all perseverance. How? By signs and wonders and miracles. So the signs of a true apostle are to be able to do these things. So I do not think, as you read through this text, that we should understand that part of our gospel ministry is to go out and heal people, to somehow raise the dead. Now, when it comes to raising dead people, to life, it only took place five times it's recorded in the New Testament, from what I've understood. And all of these different healings that are recorded in the New Testament are not that widespread. They only happened during fairly early on in the apostolic ministry. And as the first century took place and we got further away from the time of Pentecost, you saw a gradual decline of those miracles in taking place. For example, the Apostle Paul was given power to raise a gentleman who fell out of the window of the third story room in which they're meeting in, in the wee hours of the night. This guy falls out of the window, fell asleep listening to Paul go on and on. So be glad you're on the first floor here and uh, there's only so far you can go. So this guy falls out the window, falls dead. The Apostle Paul comes down, places his body on top of there and this guy is raised to life. But you move ahead a few years later, and we read that the Apostle Paul left behind in Miletus, in one particular town, a guy by the name of um, Trophimus, and he left him sick. He was still sick, but he left town and he had to go. We also read that he's writing advice to Timothy, and he tells Timothy, hey, listen, Timothy, that ailment you got for your stomach, take some medicine for it. A little wine for the stomach's sake. And then later on, here's the Apostle Paul himself dealing with his own physical challenges. And what is it? He's unable to see them healed or changed or transformed. Now, don't misunderstand me what I'm saying here. Am I saying that God does not heal people today? No, absolutely not. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying, well, let me say this. The Lord does indeed heal people in response to prayer, James 5. There's no question that that's taught according to God's sovereign plan and how he chooses to, to work in various situations. It's not a guarantee, but the Lord does and is able to heal. These apostolic signs, I believe, of power that we read about here in this text and other parts of the New Testament are, I believe, illustrations of theological realities, things that, that God is trying to communicate through this powerful means of showing forth gospel truth. For example, as Derek Thomas would remind us, if you look at these works of power, we understand that we live in a supernatural world. You see, the worldview of Acts is that God steps in and God changes things. 
that we are not living in a world that is mechanistic. It's just, it just things are like a machine that just continually operates based on the fact that nothing outside of this machine can impact what's happening in the world. That's not true. These miracles show that God can and does intervene and that God can and does act contrary to the laws that he has established. And therefore, miracles are really a glimpse into the promise of the new creation. They're a reminder for us and for unbelievers that Jesus came to rescue his people from the curse of sin. And one day, because Jesus did indeed defeat Satan on the cross, he did break that curse of sin in a definitive way through his resurrection from the dead, there is going to be a new heaven and a new earth. There's no longer, someday in the new heaven and new earth, there will no longer be disability, praise God. There will no longer be disease, praise God. There will no longer be death, praise God. And so what I think Peter is trying to convey here is, don't lose sight of God's work of redemption is not over. There are many signs of promise yet to come. And interestingly enough, the term that he used for get up, is the same term that was used for Jesus who was raised up from the dead, reminding us that Jesus one day is giving us a sign that the new life that we as believers, we are raised up to live for the power of Christ unto a new way of living. That's happening now and ultimately we'll see that play itself out in the future. There's reason to hope. And that brings me to my last point. Hang in with me. This is not a long one, but it's just a very interesting thought to think of the gospel example of Peter himself. The gospel so impacted Peter that he himself served as an example. You say, where did you get that? Well, let's look at verse 43. Back now to Acts 9. It came about that Peter stayed many days in Joppa with a certain tanner, named Simon. Peter stays in his home. You say, okay, well, what's the big deal? Well, this man made a living tanning animal skins. I don't think you want me to go into details as to what that means, but it's, let's just say it's a pretty nasty, um, messy way of earning a living. I'm glad that somebody does. It's helpful and necessary, but this was a trade that was considered unclean by first century Jews because it's got death all over it. And so further evidence that Peter now is doing what? He's taking greater and greater steps in dealing with people who were considered outsiders, people who were no longer, uh, for him, off limits now because the, the freedom and the power of the gospel has really changed him. And what has changed him? I think it's the way he looks at himself. His sin initially was the sin of nationalism because he's thinking that you really can't be pleasing to God unless you become Jewish. And that's just a form of legalism, really. And legalism is looking to something besides Jesus in order to be acceptable, in order to be clean before God. And when you fall into legalistic ways of thinking and acting, guess what? You're a person that oftentimes is filled with pride and fear psychologically, and you deal with people, when it comes to social issues, you deal with exclusion and strife. You can't get along with people who are different from you, and you want to be separate from people who are different from you. 
And thankfully, as you read the writings and some of the, hear the sermons of, of uh, Tim Keller, you know, he'll remind us that some of us struggle with this ourselves. That we are people who can sit in a setting like this and okay, I'll share a bench with somebody for a short period of time, but I'm not gonna really get close to them. I'm not gonna have them into my house. I'm certainly not gonna become friends with them because of, well, the wealthier people look at, they feel like they don't really uh, feel like they wanna hang out with people who are less socially refined Vice versa, people have one political persuasion, try to avoid the, the, the party or people of another group of political persuasion and say, listen, I don't have anything to do with these people. There are very pe people who are talented Christians, they feel unhappy when they considered um, mediocre, like they're, they're not treated as being valued and other people are, and so they feel like they're alienated. Well, I don't wanna be part of these people. All kinds of ways in which we feel uncomfortable in relationships. Whereas the gospel says what? I don't need to be connected. I don't need to be fully fitting in in order to feel like I'm right with God. I already have been accepted by God through Jesus Christ and the gospel. And therefore, because I've been accepted, I can therefore be a person who welcomes others who are different from me. As Keller says, without the gospel, our hearts have to manufacture self-esteem by comparing our group with other groups. But the gospel tells us we are all unclean without Christ and we're all clean in Christ. What's my point here? Peter had changed. And in his changing, as he spends time with now people who were much different from him, he's no longer just saying, I've got to follow, hang out with certain people who are like me. I've got to avoid certain places. I've got to avoid pork. You know, he's got this long list of things that he's, governed by. No, now his heart is liberated. Now he's able to minister to people. And I find it interesting that Joppa is the same town that Peter is now showing these kinds of changes. Joppa was the town that Jonah was stopping in on his way to avoid taking the gospel to people that he hated, didn't like, wanted to see God judge them. He's trying to go the opposite direction to go westward and it's Joppa where you have the unfaithful prophet who needed to have what? His heart changed by the gospel that was being shown to him, the gospel of grace. And his heart needed to be changed. And here is Peter showing us this guy gets it. He's beginning to get it little by little. And if you look in his writings in 1 Peter, it's interesting to see that Peter describes himself now as one of the several elders. And the elders are meant to be what? People who are examples to the flock under their care. And how does Peter try to encourage the people under his care? He's trying to minister to the spreading out of all these Christians. They call the diaspora, the, the, the dispersion of all these believers all over the Roman Empire, living under Rome's tyranny and all of their pagan ways. And what does he say? You're going to have to suffer sometimes for doing what's right. And then he gives an example here and he says, listen here, you early Christians, keep your behavior excellent among the whom? The Gentiles, the outsiders, the people who don't get it, the people who are still lost. Keep your behavior before them exemplary. Why? Because you are going to bring glory to God as you live out gospel truths of who you are in Christ before them. Therefore, what? You don't have to be afraid of them. You don't have to avoid them. You want to enter into their lives in ways that are redemptively used by God. He got it. He's getting it. He got it. We're going to need to get it. And hopefully over time, God by his grace 
will help us share it. Let's pray. Lord, we look in this text, we realize there are many different levels of deep truth and insights that we've just begun to scratch the surface, but I pray that you would take some of these thoughts and just keep, Lord, using this portion of your word to help our own hearts to be more accepting, more open, more willing to um, move in a direction and redemptively toward people who are different from us, toward people that we normally would avoid, toward people who are the outsiders, those who are very little in common with us. But Lord, help us, we pray, to be open to um, seeing the gospel come to people who are different from us, that, Lord, we might see you be glorified and the diversity of the kinds of people within our church family is nothing more than a testimony of the greatness of the gospel to change and to transform all different kinds of people and make us one family of God. For the glory of your name we pray. Amen.